You are listening to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Uh, We are going to be talking about narrative nonfiction on today's episode, which is sometimes interchangeably known as creative nonfiction, which I kind of feel like is a backhanded compliment to the the genre. Uh, But we're going to be talking about uh, our favorite narrative nonfiction books that is true stories, historical accounts, and sometimes memoirs that are written in such a way that use literary techniques to create a really appealing, well-paced narrative. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Here are some recommendations. We are here today to talk about one of my favorite things, and that's nonfiction books. Woo. I'm joined by our assistant director, Jordan. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Jeff. And a librarian, Sarah, is here again. Hi, thanks for having me. And I find a lot of podcasts that probably do really great book recommendations. I find a lot of articles that do book recommendations. It's so rare that they talk about nonfiction. I'm so glad we're doing that today. But Sarah, can you talk about what we're actually talking about today, which is narrative nonfiction? I'm glad you're also excited, first of all, because I feel like genre fiction gets all the love sometimes. It gets and too like, much love. Rightfully so. I think people get really passionate about their favorite genre fiction authors and titles. Um, but It's escapism. It totally. But I think if you think about the things that you love about those genre fiction books, which is, you know, good characters and an interesting story and like things that are well paced, Mm -hmm. those things show up in narrative nonfiction as well. So when we say narrative nonfiction, you're thinking of true life books, real Mm -hmm. life books that tell a story that are not, we're not talking about like DIY manuals or like cookbooks, even though sometimes people do, I guess, sit down and read those too. But they're books that sort of like start with an introduction, start with characters, give mm-hmm. you background information yeah, and take you through. And so sometimes in library world, or I guess book world, you call it narrative nonfiction mm-hmm. in the sense that there is a narration that is taking you through the story. Yeah. I feel like I have seen biographies too rise into the zeitgeist of the buzz factors, whether it's Angela's Ashes or Glass Castle. But I... It's still so rare that I see narrative nonfiction getting all the buzz factor. Although, can I just start with a book that I do feel like has buzz factor and I do feel like is referenced and I do feel like is a cliched pick and I'm going to just get it out of the way so that people don't think it's anticlimactic. And that's The Devil in the White City. I was just going to guess that you were going to say that. Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Uh, which is going to be adapted and, well, has been talked about being adapted into a movie for like a decade by Martin Scorsese. And, well, we'll talk about Eric Larson in a, in a minute here, but this is the story of what I like to consider to be the American Jack the Ripper or the American Sweeney Todd. Uh, and it is that gruesome and creepy and scary and murderous, but it's against the backdrop of the World's Fair in the early 1890s of Chicago, which is just an incredible feat of architecture, I guess we can technically say. Uh, And Eric Larson, thoughts from my panel. He's like the the master of of the art form of narrative nonfiction. I I think one of the things that I love about narrative nonfiction that he does so well, and I think he has been so mimicked by 
other authors in the genre is that like a good mystery novel or a good action novel, he's going to drop you pieces of information. And sometimes those pieces of information, those context clues lead you to the wrong conclusion as a reader, just like a good mystery will, will put you on the wrong suspect for a few chapters. So you're reading, you keep reading to find out what's going on and whether or not you were right. There's decisions being made of what's revealed instead yes. of, instead of starting on page one about the murderous H.H. Holmes, I'm not going to do an info dump that lasts 45 pages where I give you every single thing about him ever. And I'm not going to write 100 consecutive pages about the guys who built the World's Fair. It's all dropped in there. And then he introduces historical figures as though they are characters. That's the word I choose. They feel like characters. They do feel like characters. Yeah. Yeah, I think he does a really good job of like fleshing out real life people in a way that's not doesn't read as like a dry biography of this person was born on this date and they did this and this and this. Right. Yeah. Very well, well written. Well, uh, very descriptive. You feel like you see every structure. You feel like you're living there in the 1890s. Books like that, I think I'd do a really good job of like, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Is, mm -hmm. is you get this little slice of history about the World's Fair and about Chicago at the time and building and architecture. And then you get this really bizarro story of of the serial killer yeah kind of laid on top of that and that's what gives you that pacing like that's what gives you the mystery of kind of like continuing to turn the pages and make it not be like a dry history lesson yeah i probably wouldn't i mean i have a degree in history and I'm really interested in history even that particular era and i probably wouldn't pick up a book on the 1893 chicago world's fair without something else to entice me to along. Hook you in, right? Yeah. Um, but then but, you find out interesting things like the people who helped uh, build that were the same people who planned Central Park. In Belle then, Isle. And then you think about Belle Isle and then you think about how architects have to go into, uh, what is this, land architecture? I forgot what the phrase is, but hmm. this book goes deep on it and it makes me get really excited about it like I just did on Mike. <laughs> so one of the, One of the things... I mean, I know Eric Larson is like, he's the obvious So who else has author. he covered? He's covered World War I, Lusitania. He's covered... Galveston Hurricane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isaac Storm. Uh, World War II Nazi Spies. I actually didn't read that one. In the Garden of Beasts was mm -hmm. the title. Uh, didn't pick it up. Heard great things. Yeah, it was good. That one was good. Um, it's about the U.S. ambassador in Germany uh, during Hitler's takeover mm -hmm. of power. And I think the one that the way that that one drives and keeps pulling you in is because you know what happens mm -hmm. because we all know what happened, but you know having seeing how it gets there is very interesting. Yeah, uh, you both brought a lot of notes. Who would like to go first? I kind of want to open things up. I kind of want to jump in because I feel like I have a read that feels not necessarily similar to Devil in the White City, but I think it has some of the same kind of like the like draws to it, and that's Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. And it is about the assassination of James Garfield. And like you said, Jordan, like, you know what happens. Like, right away, this is somebody who was assassinated very early on in his presidency. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like 1880, same time frame. And he doesn't die right away. He's shot in a train station. He doesn't die right away. And so the, the ensuing pages is are 
Like Alexander Graham Bell is furiously trying to invent on the spot an x-ray machine to find the bullet, to take the bullet out. I never knew that. Wow. The whole story, you're just like frantic to find out what happens, even though history tells us exactly, you know, we know that he dies. He's also a really, really interesting person. Mm -hmm. And the first half of the book sort of details his life and his education from a very rural area in Ohio. And I mean, I knew literally nothing about him when I picked up the book. And he was just a fascinating character slash person. Sure. And it's the 1880s. 1880s. So it's like the backdrop of Wild West, westward expansion. It's an interesting time in America. It is. And about a lot of the book is about the politics of the era, right? Right. So you are not very far removed from the Civil War, which was really, you know, still very like a divided America. And this is somebody elections were very different at the time. He didn't want to be president. Mm -hmm. He didn't Mm. even run for the presidency because that's not how we used to choose presidents. And there's no part of the book that reads... Like, you're never bored, you're never, I never felt like, oh, this is an aside that I that I don't need any part of. I've also read it for, with a book club, and there are so many really interesting themes of gun violence and mental health and politics and history and, Interesting. and all this stuff. It was like such a good discussion. Who is the author again? Candace Millard. Okay, and cool. she has written several, in fact, she, I think... She, I was thinking of her earlier because she has a book on Churchill. And so she's written several. She's not, I would say, as prolific as Eric Larson, but she's still young. She does a book every couple of years. And I would highly recommend anything by her. But that Destiny of the Republic is is one of my all-time favorite nonfictions. To, to put out a, a narrative nonfiction book every few years is pretty impressive. Um, one of the things that's pretty typical throughout the genre is that if you include dialogue, that dialogue almost always is coming from a written source. Right. Assuming there's not like video recordings or something. If we're a, talking about a source back. that you likely spent weeks tracking down because it's so obscure and buried in a file cabinet somewhere. So yeah, I mean it's it's you're a prolific author if you write a novel every 2 years, <laughs> but if you can do the research and pull out dialogue and create an interesting story after doing all the research every few years it is very impressive. Yeah. What books do you want to talk about, Jordan? Oh, when you asked me to do this, my, my brain jumped to one of my favorite books. It's called The Living Great Lakes by Jerry Dennis. Never read it. Jerry Dennis. It came out in 2003, 2004. Jerry Dennis is from, I don't know where he's from, but he lives in Traverse City. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's mostly a nature writer, but this is a true story. He, in his hometown outside of Traverse City, uh, there was an old two-masted schooner called the Malabar that was just decrepit and, you know, basically ready to sink into the water and disappear and some rich guy in Bar Harbor, Maine, buys it and hires, I want to say he's Finnish, but I'll just say Nordic because I know it's close to there, mm-hmm. uh, a Nordic sea captain to get the vessel to the point where it's seaworthy and then take it from Traverse City through the Straits of Mackinac down Lake Huron, past Detroit, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, mm-hmm. St. Lawrence Seaway, and then out to the Atlantic Ocean and to Bar Harbor. And Jerry Dennis somehow convinces the guy that he being a... a middle-aged man with no sailing experience and a bad knee will be useful on 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 the journey so the journey is the is the kind of guides the narrative but he does a wonderful job of introducing you to like the the history of lakes the culture around the lakes the ecology of the lakes the challenges of the lakes so like the the environmental issues that 
the lakes have either gone through or overcame or will be dealing with in the future. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just uh, one of my favorites. That is interesting. I, the name is not familiar to me because a couple years ago, there was another book called The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, mm -hmm. the same author. Different author. Different author. Yep. Okay. But similar subject, at least. Yeah. Clearly. Lakes. The Living Sciences. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. The Living Great Lakes is, is very celebratory. Yeah. Life and Death of the Great Lakes is... It's scary if you live around here and care yes. about the lakes. Yes, indeed. Um, I've got a new book to talk about as well. Uh, but it brings us back to... I don't have a good transition from that because I'm going to veer back to politics. Uh, and I don't know if this is the only time that this author's name is going to come up. And it's Doris Kearns Goodwin. Only, all right, we got another one over there. Yeah, is it Team of Rivals? It's not Team of Rivals. <gasps> it's not Team of Rivals. It's called The Bully Pulpit. Mm. Okay. And it is, I, I shouldn't be surprised that I was um, captivated by this book because it's technically about journalism, which is what my degree is in. But at the end of the day, it's a story about a friendship that goes sour. It's 1909. It's Roosevelt and Taft. And it, the bully pulpit refers to Roosevelt kind of being one of the first presidents to, uh, let's say, utilize the press to uh, further his notably progressive stance on things. Sometimes uh, aggressively manipulate, sometimes lightly cajole, getting reporters to get his agenda out there, I guess. That's that, in, a, in a way to influence Congress, basically to create public pressure to move things forward. That is the bully pulpit. But it's really about how Taft was Roosevelt's hand-picked successor. And Taft was like, um, well, you know, Roosevelt, everyone knows Roosevelt. Big, blustery, barrel-chested, rambling, high energy, just like a, a cup of coffee with legs. Um, <laughs> rugged individual, mustache, always grinning. And like Taft is... You know, this portly, quiet, like reclusive guy, but they were very good friends. A friendship of a sweet intimacy, I think, is the quote, which in the book, which they were they were buds. So like I've got I've done my two terms. They're not going to let me get a third term. I'm really going into my progressivism here. I'm going to see where that takes me. Can you take the presidency? I'm going to like let you be my successor. And Taft's like, I really just want to be a judge and like not talk to <laughs> not really talk to anyone. Can I just be on the Supreme Court? And he's like, no, you got to be president. Uh, and eventually, as the book goes along, you just get to learn about their friendship and how it eventually sours. And they, they become not enemies, but just the tension of that lifestyle breaks breaks them apart. And I just got to learn a lot about Taft, who's a president we don't talk about often. And Doris Kearns Goodwin is, you know, kind of a go-to political historian. She's constantly on news programs to comment on specifically presidential history so she's she's a master she's a master the I'm, bully glad, pulpit. I'm glad her name has come up because yes. i do think she is i know jordan she was on your list too mm -hmm. um i could have easily put team of rivals on my list as well i think she is a preeminent yeah. american historian yeah and maybe doesn't always i'm glad to see her on tv and things like that yes yeah, i feel like she's universally well respected yeah so Taft has the presidency for four years. He's absolutely miserable. And after he's done with the presidency, he gets to be on the Supreme Court and he's a gleeful little happy boy. He's like, yes, I'm a judge. Everybody leave me alone. 
And then he probably dies in the 20s. Anyway. I want to listen to the the Jeff uh, radio show of this, like a... I loved it. An abridged version where you just like act it out and you play all the parts. Happily. Clearly. Yeah. I would would listen to that. I just watched the... um, Is it a PBS documentary? On Roosevelt? On Roosevelt. Oh, was that? Yeah. It was like the same one they did for on Grant. Yes. On Roosevelt. Yes. That was the one where I learned that he would like wake up his children or grandchildren at three in the morning because he had something like really interesting to say to them and he would just sit them down and just talk to them for an hour because he just had to tell someone. He would just wake his family up in the middle of the night because, I mean, just, he's a human spark plug. Sarah, more books? Oh, always. So um, I'm trying to think of where to go next. Um, I... Do not have anything sort of explicitly like political necessarily on my list, although I, you know, there's an undercurrent of a couple, one of the books that I want to talk about. I think the first thing that always comes up for me when people ask for narrative nonfiction suggestions is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And he started, they made a movie out of it, but the book he started, The Equal Justice Initiative, um, where they represent, Atlanta or outside of Atlanta, and they represent both people who have been wrongfully convicted, but also people who have been sort of overly sentenced um, for many different reasons. And um, I also have discussed this in a book club. It's a great book for a book club. It is one of those books where you think you know your opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks a lot about people on death row and about capital punishment. And you think you know where you stand on, on that. And it is one of those books where your expectations of, you know, for me, coming at some of these stories is my mind was just blown constantly. And it's the nuances and the gray areas of these stories are complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the justice system is racist and classist and um, all of those other things. But to see it come alive in in people's lives, I thought was just really powerful. Um, and so I suggest that all the time. It's a, and it's a fast read. It's like not very long. Um, he moves through, you know, with these big ideas, but also the individual cases, I think really like is find it to be super powerful. I like how you put that, how it can surprise you. Oh my gosh, yes, I was, I, I was really surprised because I think that, you know, most people wouldn't say, well, somebody's wrongfully convicted shouldn't be on death row. Right. But there's there is a lot more to a lot of those stories. You may have said this, but is Stevenson a lawyer? Yes. Yes. Could you also call this book a memoir? So it does tell it does talk a little bit about his background, but the I would say the this book is mostly in our collection. It's in the three hundreds, which is like social mm. science and and law. It is mostly about this initiative and the justice system, and and their their legal work. I think he doesn't necessarily want it to be just about him. Sure, it really makes the whole thing like that much more powerful. I think memoirs are fair game today. I may or may not bring up one. I I got I got some, I got yep. some uh, little memoirs. I will too. say like <laughs> memoirs are the exception when we're talking about a lot of narrative non narrative nonfiction. Right. All the dialogue right. is usually coming from like a written source or something. Right. Whereas like memoir, everybody it's kind of fair game. Like that's mm-hmm. my understanding of the memoir is that like you know everybody understands that your memories 
aren't accurate. So dialogue is just like it's fair game. It's like yes, this is nonfiction, but I like also recreated these to the best of my memory. Exactly. And maybe made them more interesting. <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to sell books here, you know. Exactly. Uh, which I'll just go ahead and throw in because it's a book that I enjoyed, and I don't care what anybody says about it. But it was called The Tender Bar, mm. by Moringer. I'm forgetting his first name. Are you not familiar with the with the Tender Bar? Anybody? It's a memoir of his. I didn't uh, read it. J. J. R. Moringer. I, I remember when it came out and it got a lot of press, and then I just saw that it's on one of the streaming services. It's about his childhood and the family owns a bar, and how he's kind of raised in the bar, and how that might sound dicey, but he starts to have very positive influences in his life, inside of this inconspicuous setting. Uh, I think it was written as though it were a novel, even though it's his real life, and I'm sure that becomes there's some flourish to it where he's just well this is mostly how it happened and then it got made into a movie and got horrible reviews oh well mm, shame jordan any more books on your list i feel like we got to talk about bill bryson right yeah yeah let's take us take us on a walk through the woods <laughs> yeah that's the one i had so uh one of his favorites of mine is called a walk in the woods they made a movie about it, it has robert redford in it the movie was fine it's fine i like robert redford me too yeah but yeah it's about it's about two middle-aged gentlemen i don't even remember why but they decide that they're going to hike the entirety of the appalachian trail which is over over a thousand miles easily um, through the mountains from georgia to maine i think they get pretty far they learn a lot you learn a lot about the trail and about the history of the region it's also pretty humorous because as you can imagine these people these two gentlemen were not uh hikers or athletes they're right. just like regular old guys about to uh try to do something very difficult the uh, the stakes that are kind of laid down is that people 10 and 15 years younger than them sometimes do not finish such a hike. I don't think most people finish. And most people most and it people takes weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. Yeah. The other one did either of you read a short history of nearly everything? Is that Hawking? Also Bill Bryson. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he Hawking is the short history of time, I'm sorry. A brief history <laughs> yeah. of time. He does interesting like he has historical narrative nonfiction one summer about 1927 is one of my favorites mm -hmm. in addition to his travel writing my particular favorite travel writing of his is in a sunburnt country australia where he goes to mm. australia the scene there's two scenes that stand out where he wakes up in alice springs and then there's another scene where he describes as as an american who he has also lived in europe for a long time he's describing a cricket match and like, I'm a giant sports fan. I don't know anything about cricket. His description of the cricket match is just <laughs> so wonderfully funny. Yeah, I think what makes Bryson so funny is that he is obviously super intelligent, a fantastic writer, but he's also super self-deprecating and understands his own limitations and is not afraid to mock himself mm -hmm. and make himself, like he's always the butt of his own, butt of the joke, right. you know? Mm -hmm. I technically jumped ahead of line and threw the tender bar out there. So we're going to go to another pick from Sarah. Oh, well, so I, you know, in addition to like Jordan, I like his historical nonfiction, but I do like memoirs and bios. I listen to a lot of like celebrity bios, mm -hmm. you know, the Trevor Noah's and the, I thought Ali Wong's was hysterical. Mm -hmm. um, 
I kind of wanted to talk about Stanley Tucci's recent memoir, which is called Taste, which is really a lovely like combination of memoir, but revolving around food. And then he got uh, tongue cancer Mm -hmm. in 2021. And so it's really kind of a poignant look about like what it means to like eat and have meals and share food with people. But what I really want to talk about is a book that I just finished called Did You Hear Mammy Died? by Seamus O'Reilly, was five years old when his mom died of cancer. They lived in um, outside of Derry in Northern Ireland. And he was one of 11 children. And he's kind of near the end of the range. Mm As somebody who has lost both of my parents, um, I have sought out a lot of books about grief and trauma and people who have lost their parents. And and I've read a lot of memoirs. Nothing that I've read made me laugh harder about grief and like survival and memory. And nothing made me cry harder. Mm -hmm. Like I was just ripped to pieces at the end. And I didn't want it to end. I just, I wanted to keep reading it. I thought it was so funny. Well, there's two dynamics going there because not only are you losing a parent at an extremely young age, but for the brief time you have been on this earth, you've been sharing your parent with 10 other people. So does and it And he of... does a good job, I think, of really balancing. He In the book, he talks about, you know, when people come to him and say, well, you know, how did you get through this trauma? And he's like, well, here's my advice, B5. Like, you know, he he acknowledges that the that the trauma that he went through is not the same trauma of his older siblings. Right. That that yeah. that they honestly probably suffered a little in in a different way mm-hmm. um than he did. And he is just so funny. I want him if you're listening, Seamus O'Reilly. <laughs> please. Seamus, come on the podcast. <laughs> please write a novel cuz I think mm. he would be his storytelling is just perfection. Like the, you know, like a lot of memoirs that are kind of essay-ish. Um, a lot of the chapters are kind of like beginning to end stories. Mm-hmm. And I think the pacing and the like the actual storytelling about how those the narration like comes back around is just pitch perfect. Excellent. Five stars. I don't give anything five stars. It was like my first five star review, I think, of the year on Goodreads. Seamus, write a novel. Then come on the podcast. <laughs> um, all right, Jordan. Yeah, the last one I brought with me is called Dreamland by Sam Quinones. Hmm. Um, it is about the opioid epidemic. Oh, okay. Uh, I think he wrote it in like 2014. Mm-hmm. So that was probably about the time that most of us were hearing about things like Narcan and and about the opioid epidemic generally. But, um, you know, this has been going on for 15, 20 years previous to that even. Um, and the book focuses really on, on three things. Um, one is the effect that this had on particularly small towns and particularly small towns, like rural mm-hmm. white small towns in particular, like this, this epidemic affected everybody, but it hit these places the hardest. The, the second um, is the role that the big pharmaceutical companies had in fudging their data and their messaging to promote to physicians and prescribers that these things were were not um, habit forming or addicting, even though they probably knew mm-hmm. or did know. Uh, and the third, and one of the most interesting thing is um, that most of what 
a lot of well, a lot what a lot of these users switched to when their oxycontin supply got cut off was black tar heroin. Mm-hmm. And apparently, black tar heroin is a very specific type of heroin that's relatively new, and it came and it comes from and came from um, a town about the size of Ferndale in western like coastal Mexico. All of it came from one place, and it's it wasn't a um, it's like distributed. It wasn't dis- distributed by the cartel. It was distributed by like basically like cousins and uncles and friends. It was all people who knew each other from this mm. town of like twenty thousand people in western Mexico, um, and they would sell it out of hotel rooms. And obviously, I'm sure the author had a hard time getting people to talk about their industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just absolutely fascinating, just that you could trace this giant problem all the way back to a, a, a small a small place in particular. I have a transition for that. Someone who works here at this library just recommended that I should start reading a book called Raising Lazarus. Hmm. I think she's sitting at the table. And <laughs> it's by Beth Macy, who wrote Dope Sick. Dope Sick, which is also tied in with that. And she's been this crusading reporter slash author talking about this. Uh, it's, it's, it's an epidemic, this overdosing epidemic that's going on. And so... What this book is about is she's uh, on the ground in Western North Carolina, and whereas Dopesick has laid out everything that the pharmaceutical companies have done, there's been really no repercussions whatsoever. And so this new book, Raising Lazarus, is about okay. So what are the people, re- regular everyday people, on the ground doing in their communities to help their communities? If the government isn't helping, who is helping? And we get to meet all those people, and it's written really well, even though it's such a heavy subject but she introduces all these characters who are in these communities uh these really good sweet souls who are helping these people i'm only halfway done so i can't comment yet it's good so far it's good um i'll talk about a music book Mm. it's called trouble boys it is the story of the band the replacements who existed roughly between 1981 and 1991 ish uh so it is a whirlwind 10 years uh of this band from Minnesota, and they are slapdash, shambolic, Americana folky, punky, spilled out, uh, seat of their pants, unwieldy kind of a band. They were everything. They were everything. <laughs> and they could actually write really catchy tunes, too. The book is kind of a chronological telling of their entire existence, but it's, it's bookended with the... Uh, you know, sad and tragic death of one of its members, Bob Stinson, who dies in the mid-90s. And as you read the story, you kind of could see if you, you know, had to guess which one of these four uh, rapscallions was going to die young. It's this one. It's He's truly the most troubled. He's got addiction problems. His brother is in the band. And so the book uh, opens, at, opens at the funeral, but then jumps back and tells the story by Bob Mayer. And I and I really, really loved it. It had a narrative pace to it. And I think it's just good to, if you do want to tell that chronological story of a band, if you kind of just hook it with that book ending effect, I think was really effective, I think. I recommend it. Um, you you just, said whirlwind. In my brain, I was like a tornado of a band. Like totally just a, yes. uh, a mess. Yes. I think... Intentionally self self-sabotaging yes it gets to kind of a peak moment where they are invited to play on saturday night live and (laughs) they get to play two songs and i think they're well 
they get into trouble because they're trouble <laughs> boys and I think they wind up getting banned from the show. But it's like they are, they have, there's a, lots of moments in the book and the moment when they play Saturday Night Live is one of them where they, where they come up to the precipice of, all right, well, if you just stay in your lane right now and you don't do that one thing, you're going to be fine and you're probably going to be successful. And they're like, F it. And then yeah. just do it anyway. Self-destructive is the word. Um, but it's, it's a good read. Uh, Sarah, do you have some more books? Of course I have more books. Um, so in the enter- entertainment industry, mm-hmm. one of my suggestions um, often to patrons that are just like looking, you know, quote unquote, looking for a good book is called As You Wish by Carrie Ellis. Yes. And I am by no means a Princess Bride super fan. I know I know they exist. That Carrie, okay. Right here. Yeah, yes. Got it. Right here. Um, so one, one exists right here. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it more than once okay. and it's a funny, lovely movie. Wonderful. The book is just delightful. Mm-hmm. It is not, if you're looking for dirt, like either there was no dirt to divulge or like, he's just not telling. Um, but it's a st- the story of making the movie. It's the story of Hollywood. And if you, have the chance I would suggest listening to it I listened to it on audio and he reads it and then there's also like the guest voices of Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal and Carol Kane and Susan Sarandon um not Susan Mandy Patinkin Patinkin. (laughs) Chris Sarandon I I mean and uh Christopher Guest also shows up on the audio so and Robin Wright so you hear all of the voices of the people who just seemed like they were all just clicking with each other at the right time and the right way. Like, I say there's no dirt, and it just makes it sound like when you hear all their voices that, like, movie magic was happening. And to hear them tell the story of of how they filmed some of these scenes, like the, the famous sword fight... Mm-hmm is just really, really wonderful. And all of their memories of Andre the Giant, who was, I knew almost nothing about, but apparently was a pretty complicated person. Um, are just, it's just really, it was really fun to read. I have no surprise whatsoever that it was magical and perfect and sweet. Yes. And that there is no dirt. Yeah. Having seen the film 170 times. <laughs> it's it's a delight. If you are if you need something, uh, a nonfiction that's a little bit lighter, it's it's, very light. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. I think I talked about all the books I want to talk about. Although I will randomly throw out a, a shout out to Reza Aslan's book about Jesus that oh, I listened to. I did like that. It's been a while. Yeah. Which I also, you know, as someone who fully lapsed from religion by the time I listened to it, I just listened to it out of uh, curiosity and on audiobook too. Uh, so another recommendation for audiobooks since it's read by the author. Uh, and it's called Zealot. And it's just historical a, Jesus. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so if you want to hear dramatic accounts of Jesus swaggering into town and throwing over the tables of the moneylenders and throwing them out of town, that's you could see Jesus as a badass. Uh, and you can see contextualizations of how the Romans really weren't uh, concerned whatsoever about anyone thinking that this individual was the son of God. They just thought, oh, they're kooks, and he's probably a kook too if he thinks that. We're really just concerned if you think you're the king of the Jews, because hmm. uh, then that becomes a problem for us. 
uh, are you the king of the Jews? All right, we got to crucify you. And so I'd never heard the story in that way. So yeah, zealot story of Jesus, Reza Avalon. So. And he's not a Christian, right? So he's writing from right. a, a more removed right. perspective. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. Now I'm out of books, Sarah. Do you have any more books? I do have another book. Let's do it. So it's funny because I feel like we talked a little bit about the, the opioid a- epidemic. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a nonfiction author named Patrick Radden Keefe, who recently wrote Empire of Pain, which is about the Sackler family. Mm. Uh, I did not read that, and I don't want to talk about that. But I do want to talk about his other book called um, Say Nothing. And we talked a little bit about some like historic nonfiction that reads a little bit thriller-esque. You know, this... I think we have it shelved actually in our true crime area. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts off with a murder or it starts off with a kidnapping and then spins out uh, the history of the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, you know, starting kind of not all the way back, but I think kind of dives back into the twenties mm-hmm. and the kidnapping takes place in the early nineties, maybe late eighties. So it is the story of the provisional IRA and the troubles in Northern Ireland. And there are a hundred million characters. And it is a it is a history that I think most Americans know we have like not a whole lot of context about. So it is dense. It, the book is long. Um, at no point, though, did I ever think it was too long. In fact, the entire time I read it, and it didn't take me very long to read it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And like everybody I would talk to at the library, I'd be like, I, have you read this? I, like I needed somebody to process it with me. And I think the really great thing about that book and about how he frames the book is there are implications today about what happened there and about how we label things as conflict, war, <laughs> troubles, which sounds so like, <laughs> it was a little bo- bit of a bother exactly. there. Um, an academic library gets involved. So I think you also have like this really interesting aspect of sources and how do we protect um, you know, some of those like first accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some recordings I think that took place that basically named names and and named names of people who are still alive um, and still, um, you know, operating. It just, I thought it was a fantastic story. It's called Say Nothing? It's called Say Nothing. Nothing. It is about the the rise of the provisional IRA in like the late 80s. Um, And I think it does a good job. Uh, Patrick Redden Keefe is an American. I think he, I mean, I... I'm not an expert, but I feel like does a good job of not only taking one side or the other. I mean, I think it's clear that he definitely feels like th- there's a lot of people in a lot of par- different parties at fault here. Mm-hmm. But there are some, um, I think, opinions that you might change or feel more strongly about after finishing reading it. Jordan, has, has this conversation um, jarred loose any other ideas do you have any honorable mentions that that floated around in your I know, head i thought you were going to talk about the children's blizzard which has been on my to read list the children's blizzard forever uh it's been a long time since i read it and i threw it in that email because it popped into my brain 
I don't even know the author's name off the top of my head, but there was a blizzard at the in the early 20th century uh, that came on real fast. Like the temperature dropped like 50 or 60 degrees. Here in uh, uh, upper Midwest, okay. Dakotas, mm-hmm. that area. Um, I think the temperature dropped like 50 or 60 degrees in like an hour. And it was right when kids were getting out of school. And at least dozens, if not hundreds of kids uh, froze to death because visibility went to zero. They were all walking miles home and, and just got totally stuck but it's totally you know like a once in a lifetime oh event just terribly timed um there was another one historical one i really like called the worst hard time about the dust Timothy bowl Egan. yeah i really like fan i really like that book um the one fact that i that i took away from me that i'll never forget is that on black friday which was like kind of the worst day for in terms of like dust in the atmosphere event, they had dust in in DC even. The amount like the amount of particulate in the atmosphere uh, was equal to all the earth they moved in the entire excavation of the Panama Canal Canal in one day. Like that's how much dirt there was in the air. Oh my god! Which is just kind of hard to imagine. And then I guess if we're wrapping up, I kind of thought somebody else would bring this up, so I, I didn't do enough. I read it a long time ago, but Killers of a Flower Moon. Oh yeah. Which was, is was uh, another one of those. It's like you know, it's a murder mystery, but it's true. Now I haven't read it yet, but correct me if I'm way off base. Does that incident in history lead to the formation of the FBI? Was that how oh, that yes. tied in? Yeah. Um. So that's like proto FBI stuff going on. Yes. Um. And then you also never mentioned Team Arrivals. Neither of you two, even though we have been referencing it. We talked about Doris Kearns Goodwin. But we did bring up Doris Kearns and her awesome Taft Odyssey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, I think it's worth noting, if no one knows, Team of Rivals was a 600-some-odd book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Lincoln's presidency. And it's the partial basis inspiration for Steven Spielberg's 2013 film with Daniel Day-Lewis. The crux of it is, is that... Uh, she's basically talking about the people who Lincoln surrounded himself with. So four of the top people in his cabinet ran for the presidency mm-hmm. in 1860 against him. And that he assembled this team of rivals, people who didn't like each other, didn't agree with each other, who didn't like Lincoln even. Possibly didn't have a vested interest in his success. Yeah, yeah but like, he knew that they were the smartest, more capable guys in the room, right. even if they didn't get along or even like him. Mm-hmm. And he worked with them anyways. And had a successful administration on under the circumstances to say the least yeah here is the author i cannot believe that we have not talked about truman capote oh ever ever david david mccullough i thought we were gonna like have the david mccullough like memorial podcast the david mccullough memorial Podcast. because i could talk about some david mccullough please do we've got time um i think nonfiction is interesting because it does let you like get these weird deep dives. And I think for me, when you were talking about the children's blizzard and Isaac storm, like I have a, like a weather and like a, like weird. I'm way interested in the weather. Yeah. Like give me a mm-hmm. nonfiction book about a weird weather incident. Yeah. Like I'm into that. I read, um, the great bridge, the great bridge. Yep. The David McCullough book about the Brooklyn bridge. Right. And then I'm like, I'm a bridge, I'm a bridge person now. Like I, I, (laughs) you know, I grew up in a place with no bridges, but I'm like, now I'm like, I can tell you where I've gone to places to seek out certain bridges. Mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> so it's sort of the story of like the Roebling and the building of, of the Brooklyn Bridge. But it's a snapshot of of American history that I think is just like, you know, when you take history classes like Jordan, I'm a history major, you take these history classes, you don't get to like zone in on these very specific things um, or individuals and the, and the stories that you don't get to hear. The stories of, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, like I never heard, I grew up in the West, I'd never heard those stories before. Mm-hmm. The One of McCullough's early books is the Johnstown Flood. It's his first book, I think. And it is so fascinating. And it is like the social commentary in that book, I find really interesting where he really kind of skewers this elite club, the Carnegie's and the Morgan's uh, all would leave Pittsburgh because it was too smoggy. And they, well, they made it too smoggy and too yucky to hang out in in the summer so they went to this club a little bit further out in the country mm-hmm. and they knew this earthen dam was faulty and did nothing about it mm-hmm. and people died when the dam broke and so it's the story it's like a it, there's a weather incident um and the but the the social critique i thought of coming from him i just i he he's from pittsburgh i think he grew mm-hmm. up there Pittsburgh also has a great Roebling Bridge. Mm-hmm. Just also a uh, <laughs> also an historian of presidents. Um, yes, McCullough wrote about right. presidents, and I feel like we can give McCullough credit for being one of the OG, you know, deep divers, deep diggers. Whereas before McCullough comes around in the early '90s, I think we would hear about FDR and Kennedy and Lincoln ad nauseum, and he's like, "I'm going to write about Truman." A thousand pages about Truman. I'm going to write about Truman, and then I'm going to write about John Adams. Uh-huh. <laughs> how about that? And uh, So he's the deep diver. There's uh, there's some absurd number of how many books have been written about Lincoln. Yes, like, indeed. Like 25,000 full-length books. Have been, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean probably one of the most interesting dudes in the world, but at a certain point, like, okay, who cares? You know? <laughs> My favorite uh, sequences in the film Lincoln by Steven Spielberg is how everyone starts to get exasperated by how many times he goes into a rambling anecdote of a folksy anecdote that puts me in mind of a story. (laughs) Love it. About an old Fox. Yep. This one (laughs) was breaking into my chicken coop or whatever. (laughs) I hope the both of you start to incorporate that a little bit more often. Oh, if I could say that puts me in mind of a story daily, I would. I welcome it. I would welcome that. Great get more folksy the older i get yes indeed <laughs> indeed we do uh sarah brought us on this podcast because jordan and i are notorious nonfiction readers and this has been a pleasurable conversation where we've got a lot of recommendations yes thanks guys for indulging in my nonfiction dreams i think immediately i have to read the carrie ellis book because i haven't yet oh I my god like exactly uh and i feel like this could be the time that i read just mercy which i haven't yet but i would Totally recommend if you guys take away anything, go read about Taft right now. <laughs> go read the bully pulpit. No, we're gonna. I'm gonna wait for the podcast. Okay, I'll make a podcast. Um, I feel like I should probably contact Doris Gerns. Uh, Not if it's a creative reenactment. Okay, great, great. I'll just be doing right Roosevelt impersonations. <laughs> a guy who is also famous for saying bully. All right, this has been uh, uh, another uh, uh, episode chock full of recommendations. 
of the show called A Little Too Quiet, which is the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to ferndalefriends.org, but please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And a big shout out to local musician John Duffy gives us the music at the beginning and end of each episode. And a big shout out to my guests. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah. And thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>